I invite your attention to the book of Joel, the second chapter, and we want to begin reading there in verse number 28. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon my handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great day, the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. That will suffice for our reading, but what we're going to do is finish the book of Joel as one of the minor prophets we've been studying, and we will entitle our remarks, The Prophet of Pentecost. The question is, there are many things that are described here in the second chapter of the book of Joel, and beginning there in verse 28, but the question is, when was it fulfilled? It, has it been fulfilled already, or is it, as some would suppose, to be fulfilled in a future time? We'll discuss this in great detail in just a few moments, but at this time we have a wonderful privilege now of going before the God of heaven in prayer. In our previous study a couple Sundays ago, you remember that we covered Joel chapter 1, beginning there in verse 1, and went all the way down through verse 27 of the second chapter of this prophecy, and we find that in this prophecy that Joel speaks of, it was accustomed by a plague of locusts. And the book begins with the word of the Lord coming to Joel and said, Hear this, you elders and all the inhabitants of the land. He said, Nothing like this has happened, certainly not in your lifetime, but not only that, nothing like this has ever happened even in the lifetime of your fathers. The devastation would be so great that Joel says that you're going to tell your children about it, and it doesn't stop there. The devastation is so great and so thorough that your children will tell their children, and finally, their children will tell another generation besides. And Joel, you remember, described the devastation by saying this, and as I read from the New King James Version, I'll do so now on that one verse of Scripture, because I didn't know, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, what a canker worm or a pollen worm is, so this is how it's rendered in the New King James. He says, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And Joel begins by naming the things that are going to be destroyed, beginning from the luxuries of life and proceeding down through the essentials of life. Let me just say this. I thought about this the other day. You know, you and I, we have luxuries that we enjoy from day to day. I have them, and so do you. In fact, maybe you and I that live in the country we live in perhaps have greater luxuries and more luxuries than maybe any other place in the world. I don't know that for certain, but I would venture to say in looking around and also seeing on the news and reading about other places where people don't have the luxuries of life like you and I have. One day, all of a sudden, if the luxuries of my life would be taken away, I would just imagine that I would be saddened by that. 
They would be, uh, it would be completely inconvenient to lose the things that I would deem or consider to be the luxuries in my life. But it's even greater when the essentials of life are taken away. And Joel pictures that great devastation includes both. The luxuries of life are taken away and also the necessities or the essentials of life, they also are removed and taken away. He begins with those that would uh, enjoy luxuries and he speaks of the drunkard. He said the drunkard must wake out of their stupor for the source of their drink is cut off. He says that not only is the new wine, which is fermented strong drink, which the drunkards would enjoy is cut off, but he even says by way of the, an essential, the sweet wine, which is the fresh grape juice that comes from the vine that's desired by all and all enjoy, that is going to be taken away also because the source of the drink has been destroyed and that being the vine. And the Bible says that the destruction was so great that the bark is gone from the fig tree and it's clean bare and the branches are made white. And he then calls upon the priest to mourn and lament because even the offerings of worship were cut off. Now picture that. He tells them, and in just a moment I'll mention it again, but he pictures in great graphic detail what he expects, coming from God by the way, what he expects the priest to lead the people in this horrible, repentant, and sorrowful heart that they are to have. And the reason for that is the ideas or the things of worship have been destroyed too, and there's nothing to bring before God. And then I got to thinking today, I just wonder how I would feel if worship was taken away. What if worship was taken away today and you could not get up out of your beds and get dressed, preparing your minds and your hearts to worship God and come down here like we've done? What if it was taken away? Would we mourn and lament? Would we be sorrowful as he pictures that they need to be? Especially when it was because of our own doing. Would we repent? Would we weep? Would we mourn? Would we wrap ourselves in sackcloth and lay before the altar all night? I just wonder, just some food for thought, about how worship is so important. And of all the things that were taken away, the luxuries and even the essentials of life. Now that's what you need, that's what a person needs to have to sustain themselves in this life. It's taken away. But when he pictures it, he pictures there's greater sorrow, there's greater remorse, all is taken away, but it's greater because worship has now been removed because there's nothing to bring before God. What a picture of how important worship is to the great God of heaven and how it was pictured by Joel in AD, uh, in B, uh, AD, uh, in, B, in uh, 830 B.C. Got that out. 830 B.C., thereabouts, when this letter was written, when this prophetic account came to Joel, how important was worship. He tells them to mourn like a virgin in sackcloth who has lost her husband in battle that she was betrothed to from her very youth. And as we study the language of Joel, and as we've done thus far, we can surely understand the full import or impact of this calamity. But the grief is greater because 
of their worship. The fields are left bare, there is no grain, the vineyards are stripped, and therefore there's no new wine. The olive trees are barked, and therefore there's no olive oil, which is essential for food. The husbandmen, along with the vine dressers, are called upon to join the priest in mourning, for all share in the overwhelming desolation. All uh, helplessness uh, abounds everywhere because all strata of society has been affected. But then with this very graphic description of the invasion of locusts and the devastation of the land, it is followed by a call to repentance and fasting before the Lord, and rightfully so. You know, it's to be led by the priest, those servants of God, the priest who now become a prophetic type of the priest today, which is the Christian. And they're to lead the people in this charge and repent in that way. They were to gird themselves with sackcloth and lie all night before the altar. They were to lament and mourn the nation's condition and to do it in such a way as to set a good example of genuine repentance. And he tells them this. The awful calamity that, that has been is present that he's speaking of, as awful as it is and with all that's been taken away, it will only pale in comparison to the one that's coming. For he says, the day of the Lord is near. Let me just speak just a moment about this phrase, the day of the Lord. In prophetic terms, written before 830 B.C., even though, even though there are many interpretations about uh, when the dates of some of the minor prophets were written, Joel and Jonah and Obadiah, there's some discrepancy of when it was written, but I have followed suit with the uh, succession of minor prophets that I believe were written. There was Obadiah, and then there is Joel, and then there was Jonah. Now, we took Jonah and Joel out of position there, but really in succession. So prior to this time, Obadiah was the first one to use the phrase, the day of the Lord. You know, that phrase is something that is misunderstood and misinterpreted in the religious world today. You see, sometimes what folks do, and we need to be very, very careful about this. When we read a prophetic account in the Old Testament, and it speaks of impending judgment that's to come, that is in the future, we need to be very, very careful that we do not bind that prophecy on future times than they occurred. We also need to be careful, as some would do. You know, I've seen folks, and I'm sure they do it with all the best intentions, but they take a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. They take it out of context. They preach on it like it's going to happen right now or that it's going to happen in future times, not understanding that the fulfillment of those prophecies have already come. What was he speaking of then when he says the day of the Lord? That phrase is used in the Bible on a number of occasions, and it's used by way of when the judgment of God would come upon the people. And also, we can picture the day of the Lord. There will be a day of the Lord on that last and final day being the judgment day, but that's not what he was speaking of here. He's talking about the impending judgment that would come, and even though the destruction of locusts was so great, it's going to be worse. It's going to come if they did not repent. Then in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we find the first warning and, su and summons to look to God is followed by a more urgent warning and call to repentance because of this day of the Lord being at hand. 
He pictures it as a day of darkness and gloominess. He pictures it as a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then Joel goes into vivid language describing the army of locusts, the ones that were considered to be the northern army of God. He says they come with elongated heads like horses and a forward march. Nothing can deter their onward march. Oh, these invaders are coming. They're going to climb the walls and invade the courts and the houses. They will not break their ranks. And I think this is fascinating because he pictures that the, the locusts are coming in this great as a great army and the sound of their gnawing and chewing and moving sounds like chariots that were going into battle. Now picture that. Picture a chariot wheel going along on hard, uneven ground. And picture them all lined up within ranks. And we can hear them uh, from a far distance away as those wheels would grind against that ground. And that's how he pictures the sound of these locusts. But you know, in spite of the terrible judgment and destruction caused by these locusts, it's not too late. You remember we talked about that. If the people will turn to God with a heart of genuine penitence, with unfeigned fasting, and with weeping and mourning, they were told to do what, though? Here's the greatest picture of repentance. They were told to rend the heart and not the garments. You know, that's a picture of this. If you're going to make changes, if you're going to be sorrowful, if godly sorrow is going to change you in your life, it must begin in the heart. You have to rend the heart, and you have to repent inwardly and not just outwardly. Now, outward manifestations of the things that we do are very important because outward manifestations show where our heart truly is. But it begins in the heart. And he tells them that if, if they would rend the heart and not the garments, if they would weep, if they would mourn, if they would lament, and if they would purpose to change, that God would change his mind too. That God would be merciful, and he truly was. First, he sends food they so sorely needed. And once more, they have their hunger now satisfied. And secondly, he would remove the reproach that's brought on them among the nations by driving out the locust from their sight. And fullness, gladness, rejoicing, and freedom from the locust scourge would come after the people repented and turned back to their God. And God gave them a wonderful outpouring of material plenty. And thus our study ended the last time. But the five things that we took from that, though, are these. Number one, calamities often cause people to draw nigh to God. Now, I'm not talking about specifically natural calamities, but let me just say this. Let me just picture it like this. Isn't it true that trouble causes people to turn to God? Even in the world, do you remember 9-11? When those planes went flying into those twin towers and into the Pentagon and down in that Pennsylvania field, people that weren't even considering God in their life were at least looking toward God. They were going into church houses and standing next to other people they've never seen before and holding hands. They desperately, with yearning hearts, wanted some sort of semblance of feeling that all would be okay and all would be right. That's what troubles and problems do in life, folks. 
they cause us to draw nigh to God. That's not the problem. Because I can look even in my life, and I'm sure you can look in your life, and you can say that in the greatest troubles or sorrows or challenges in your life, if you're a child of God and if you're a Christian, the first thing you did is you got by yourself and you got on your knees and you wore your knees out praying to the great God of heaven because what you were going through, we understand that. The question is, do we do that when all is well? That's really the greater challenge because calamities, trials, problems, all of that, they cause men to draw nigh to God. Two, we learned the nature of repentance, as I mentioned just a moment ago. It must be with the whole heart. It must be inward and not just outward. Three, we learned the nature of God. We learned that God is gracious and God is merciful, that he is slow to anger and of great kindness. Four, we learned that God relents from doing harm when we repent. You remember we mentioned Jonah and we preached on Jonah a while back in July, but you remember about Jonah. These people were going to be overthrown by God, and God sends a, sends a little Hebrew preacher, an enemy of these people, and he goes up and down the streets, and I understand, as I mentioned before, I'll mention it again, there's eight words in the English language that picture his sermon, but only five in the Hebrew language. So picture it this way. Sometimes we preach with all of our being, and we try so very hard to have results. We try so very hard to move the heart of the sinner, and so on and so forth. And we preach for 30, 45 minutes. We go through a gospel meeting and preach 10 sermons over an eight-day period. And sometimes, no results. This man walked the streets of Nineveh, that great city, and remember, it was like the London of the day. It was not some little podunk town somewhere. No, this was a great city. And here's the sermon, translated in the English language, original five-word sermon from Hebrew. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the Bible says the people repented, and God changed his mind. That's what we learned from last time also, and finally, we learn this, and let's not, let's not forget this. We learn that God means business. He means business. He is going to be served the way that he has described that he will be served. And if we don't do that, and if we turn back and don't do that, then the punishments of God are awaiting us. All that being said, Let's begin quickly now in verse 28. The word afterward is speaking of now times future from what he has already spoken of. In verse 28, this indicates a spiritual fullness would follow the material fullness that's already been described. And the specific fulfillment is declared by Peter on the day of Pentecost following the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here Joel says, he says this, now material plenty has already been restored to the people. In fact, an outpouring, interesting word, an outpouring of material plenty would come before the outpouring of spiritual plenty or simply put, the Spirit. And here we find that Joel says that this outpouring of the Spirit would come upon all flesh. Now, all flesh signifies this. It signifies both Jew and Gentile, for one thing, 
because anyone that was not a Jew was a Gentile. Now, I don't know how much I have in me, but there's some Italian in me, and there's some other things in me, and from my mother, there's a whole lot of West Virginia in me, whatever that is. There are people that are Irish, Hispanic folks. There are people with all manner of things and nationalities and so on. But when we say Gentile, that is all-inclusive. That's inclusive of anybody that is not a Jew. And Joel says that this outpouring of the, of the Spirit would be poured out among all flesh, meaning Jews and Gentiles, and also meaning this, meaning without distinction of race, age, or sex. Very briefly now, look in Luke, the 24th chapter, about these things. We'll go right through here about how it was fulfilled first at Pentecost with regards to the Jews. In Luke chapter 24, beginning there in verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Hear the words of Jesus, and you remember very briefly, Jesus had already gone to Golgotha's brow. He hung on the cross. He shed his blood, and he died there on that cross. Also, he was taken down from the cross. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. And he spent about 40 days with his disciples, which he's presently doing now. And he talks about this fulfillment of the Spirit that's to be poured out that Joel spoke of so long ago. He said that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name, beginning at Jerusalem, and it was going to be done on that day. Now notice... Joel speaks of an outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus says, it's the promise of my Father. So that's what's going to be poured out from them, and the promise of the Father was going to give them power from on high. Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the apostles. The promise was to be given to them, and they were of Jewish blood. Now then, going in Acts number 1 now, beginning in verse 4. This is before Jesus ascended to his Father in heaven. And in verse 4 it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Who is Jesus speaking to here before Jesus ascended to his Father? He's speaking to the same men that he spoke to in Luke chapter 24. He's not speaking to you. He's not speaking to me. He's not speaking to anyone in this context after or separate and apart from these 
apostles. And here he says, when they asked him the question in Acts chapter 1, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responded and said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Lord hath placed in his own power, but tells them again to stay in Jerusalem. What for? The promise of his father. What's the promise of the father that we just read? You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And in verse number 8, he says this, But you shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, the apostles, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So reviewing thus far, they were to stay in Jerusalem. They're going to get what? The promise of my father, Jesus said. It's going to come who or to whom or upon whom. It's coming to the apostles and only the apostles. What did Jesus specifically say in Acts 1 was the promise of his father? He said it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And here we go in Acts 2 beginning in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come... They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitudes came together, and they were confounded, because that on every man they heard him speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, aren't all these men that speak Galileans, and how we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt, and in the parts of Libya uh, about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and with, in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others said, mockingly, these men are drunken. These men are full of new wine. But the response was this. The response was, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Hence, beginning at Jerusalem then, the apostles, the Jews, received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the first part of what Joel meant when he said, all flesh. 
But then secondly, about a decade later, I am told, this happened to be fulfilled with regards to the Gentiles. And it was with regards to Cornelius and his household. You remember that Cornelius was a soldier. The King James Version says he was a centurion. He was a soldier of the Italian cohort or, or Italian regiment. He was a man that was devout, a man that feared God with all his house. He was a man that gave much alms to the people, and he prayed to God always. And he sees in a vision the angel of God coming into him and saying his name, Cornelius. Now, I can't imagine what that would do to me, but I know he was afraid. The Bible says when the angel of the Lord came in and appeared to him and said, Cornelius, he was startled and he was afraid. But then all of a sudden, some very reassuring and comforting words came from this angel. And the angel says, thy prayers and thy alms are come up for a memorial before God. He tells Cornelius, he says, you send men to Joppa and you find a man named Peter. He's staying there. He's lodging with a man named Simon the Tanner. And he's there. You go find him. Well, this man, being a military man, this Cornelius, I would imagine, would have people that would be under his direct command. And when he would say to go and do something, I would just imagine that people would just snap right to it, get up, and be about what exactly he said to do. What he tells them is, you go to Joppa, you go to Simon the Tanner's house, and you find a man named Peter, and you bring him back to me. Interesting. The angel recognized that this was a man trying to be religious, but it wasn't good enough. He was a praying man. He was a giving man. He was a good man. He was a man that I would imagine would be held in high esteem among his peers in society. He was a man that, that meant well. And yet the angel says, no. You send men to Joppa, you get Peter, and he will tell you what you have to do. He'll tell you what you're lacking. Because right now, it's not good enough. Well, you remember that as they left and as they were on their way, Peter goes up to the house to pray and became very hungry, and he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him like a great white sheet at the four corners let down to the earth. And on it were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Well, the voice came to him the second time and said, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common, showing a picture of God's acceptance of the Gentiles too. You know what's neat about this? We just can't go right past this without making a comment. Here's the point. When they bring Peter to Cornelius, and Cornelius sees this man. I think this is so interesting. Because the angel said that Peter was going to come with some authority and come with some knowledge that you need to have. This is a godly man on the way. When Peter walks in, Cornelius had been waiting for him. And he and his household were patiently waiting to hear what Peter would have to say. You know what Cornelius does? He goes up to Peter and he falls down at his feet and he starts to worship him. You know, incidentally, there's a certain affiliation that 
worships men in this life too. And they say that Peter was the first one of those fellows. I guess they forgot to read this passage here. Because you know what Peter said? Peter said, oh no. No, and he helps him up and says, you will not worship me in essence because I am only a man. I too am just a man. And words would be spoken by this man, but it is only God that's to be revered and God to be served and worshiped. Well, Peter pre uh, says this too before he preaches that sermon to him. He says of a truth, God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And he preaches to them, and then in verse 44 of Acts 10, here it is. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which had heard the word. And they of the circumcision, or those Jews that believed, those were converted Christians that were Jews, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any forbid water that these should be baptized that have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, which is by the authority of the Lord, which is water baptism, which is the one baptism that's pictured in the New Testament. It's the only one that will take away your sins. And this was a one-time thing to show that the, 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 uh, the uh, Holy Spirit would come onto the Gentiles to prove to the Jews that they're accepted of God. And we know that they did that because they said, well, how can we forbid water? If they have received the Holy Ghost like we. And they were baptized by the authority of Jesus Christ on that day. But also Joel says that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This also has already been fulfilled and does not apply today. But we find that this is fulfilled in the New Testament, for example, where Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied, 1 Corinthians 21 and verse 9. The Apostle Paul tells of women who prophesied, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 5. But what do the terms prophesying, visions, and dreams, what do they all mean? First of all, they seem not to be completely distinct from one another, but they are complementary with each other. Prophesying, by definition, stands for, one of the, for the whole of teaching by inspiration of the Spirit. Visions and dreams indicate two forms of revelation by which God would make himself known to the prophet. For example, in Numbers 12 and verse 6, it says, And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak unto him in a dream. And so it is concluded, therefore, that what took place on Pentecost marked the beginning of the complete fulfillment of Joel's word. And then Joel pictures God as showing wonders and blood and fire and pillars of smoke in heaven and on earth. Blood here suggests bloodshed. Fire upon the earth suggests the burning of cities during which the pillars of smoke billow heavenward. This figure, as used by Joel, became a description of approaching judgment. We're going to get to what exactly that was in just a moment. But let me just say this. It is true 
that Jesus did not come to condemn the world or judge the world. He came to save the world. That's a fact. But let me just say this. It became an inevitable part of his work because if people would reject the Spirit, and if people reject the Spirit today, which is through the Word of God, if people reject that, then judgment is coming. When he pictures this, I believe he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe he's talking about things. When you see those things pictured, it oftentimes in the Bible pictures the destruction of a nation. And I believe that that's already happened. But let me just say this. It does become a prophetic type of judgment to come for all those who reject the Spirit, reject this word, are going to find themselves in the same category as has been mentioned. You know, when I think about how, when I think about how the great pains that God has gone about to save our soul, we might look at these things as harsh, but look at the price that's been paid. We understand the importance by what God was willing to give in exchange for it, and Jesus too. The blessings of heaven are so great. Sin in the eyes of God is so bad. There could only be one way. And if we reject the teachings of His Son that's revealed to me by the Holy Spirit in this book, I'm going to find myself in that last and final day standing before the judgment of God. When God will pass down His judgment on me for my disobedience. Very quickly. Joel pictured it like this too. And then Peter says it in verse 21 of Acts 2. And that is, but whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Now the question is, what's calling on the name of the Lord? That's exactly what Joel said. Joel said this, that this destruction is going about, this destruction of Jerusalem is going to be uh, devastating and so on. But the remnant, you remember, according to the election of grace, Romans 11 and 5, those that would call on the name of the Lord, in other words, obey what the Lord has commanded, they'll be delivered such destruction. And that's the way it was then, and that's the way it is now. Calling on the name of the Lord is, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 21, First Peter, uh, First Peter, Acts two thirty eight. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You remember there was another time when this came out, and this came up about calling on the name of the Lord. When Saul of Tarsus was on the Damascus road to go bind those that would, would call on the name of the Lord and would obey the Lord and would be a, a Christian, you remember that as he's on that road, a great light shined round about him, and it was Jesus. And Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he responded by saying, Who art thou, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He said, What will you have me to do? Well, those blind, that blind man had to be led into the, into the city. And he was going to be told what he must do. And he goes in and prays for three days. And let me just say this. Would you imagine in a three-day prayer that there's anything at all you could have missed in a prayer? I imagine not. I would imagine, you know, we get kind of ruffled when somebody preaches 15 minutes, or prays 15 minutes, three days. 
And I would just imagine that he got everything said that needed to be said. Wasn't enough, though, was it? He accepted Jesus for whom he was, absolutely. He was willing to obey Jesus, and what do you want me to do? He was sorrowful. He went in and prayed repentantly for three days. But Ananias, here comes the preacher, and he comes on the scene and he says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's how you call on the name of the Lord, is to obey what the Lord said, and that's done and fulfilled at baptism. But finally and lastly, once again, though, with regards to the picture that Joel says about the nations that are going to find themselves in judgment and the nations that are going to be punished for persecuting and punishing God's people and so on and so forth, that's pictured in the third chapter. Again, as it was with the locust, here's a ray of hope. The ray of hope is it doesn't have to be like that. The ray of hope is that there's a bright light shining. And that is that God will be a refuge and a stronghold to all those who seek shelter beneath the shadow of his infinite wing. This is to be done in Zion, Joel says, or spiritual Jerusalem, and that is the church. You know, no strangers will pass through her today. You ever think of that? Strangers could pass through Jerusalem of old. But there'll be no strangers passing through the church. And in order to have the blessings of Zion, where God says, I will dwell, in order to have the blessings of spiritual Jerusalem, which is the church, you can't have those blessings without being a citizen of that place, a citizen of that kingdom. And that's the church. There is no blessings outside of the church. Spiritual Zion is impregnable and will never be destroyed. Let me ask you a question. I think this is really important. I really do. What is your view of the church? How do you view the church today? Because let me just say this. It is true. It is true that throughout time, man has digressed from that which is right. That's a fact. Man has done that. Man will continue to do that, I'm afraid. People will make bad choices, and there are people in the world that are not living as they should. That is all true. There are Christians who have turned their back also. That is true. But how do you view the church? This is important, fellas. I'm speaking to you now. Leaders and teachers, listen. Very important. How do you view the church? Because attitude reflects leadership. I know there are things that aren't right in the world. Maybe even among God's people. But don't ever forget this. The church is perfect. The institution of the church is perfect. And that is the only thing that will be delivered back over to God. I am confident. I am confident beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's not one man in this world, there's not one innovation in this world that can come in and destroy the body of Christ as a whole. Now, some may have lost their candlestick. Some may have lost their identity and digressed from that which is right. That may be true. 
But ladies and gentlemen, they cannot touch the church as a whole. The church is the body of Christ. It is the kingdom of Christ. It is spiritual Zion. And that's what Jesus is going to hand to his father one day. One more verse and I'm through. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 24. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's a promise. I believe it. And no man can get in the way of just that. I think that's important too because, folks, we got to convert people to that church. Do we have something to sell? We sure do, if you'll pardon the common term. We do. There's salvation found in the gospel. And you can't have salvation outside of the church. Let's take that to the world. Let's convert folks with the good news too. Oh, we always stand against things that are wrong. Don't get me wrong. Don't misinterpret and misunderstand what I'm saying. But never view the church in anything but it is, and that is the greatest institution in all the world, because that's the way I get to heaven. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.